You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we're in the midst of a series through the book of Psalms. It's 150 poems, really, of praises to God, and it's teaching us how to speak to God in times of struggle, crisis, um, collapse of faith, and, uh, st- and, and times of um, difficulty. And in some sense, uh, I decided to go through this uh, 13-week series of the Psalms just to get to today. In some sense. Uh, the other Psalms are not like filler Psalms. They're not ones we just put out there. Uh, they're really, really important too. But if we are on the topic of using the Psalms uh, to gain a language to speak to God, this language in this Psalm this morning probably feels most uncomfortable and hesitant for us to use. And that's why it's uniquely important to us to talk about and to learn about. Uh, Hear the language in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you know what he's saying? Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying, following you, God, obeying you, resisting sin, spending my life, missing out on opportunities in order to prosper or to follow the wicked, in order to be faithful to you, has been a waste of my time. And I'm not so sure it's worth it anymore. Have you been there? Do you feel permission to be there? Are you there now? Have you ever, have you ever said things like this? Have you ever uttered them in, in the, kind of the, the, the recesses of your heart? Maybe you've never spoken them out loud to somebody because it feels really awkward to say that. I don't know if I really want to do this anymore. We're talking about the language of doubt. We're talking about the language of spiritual doubt. And if you're wondering how common doubt might be for the Christian, listen to this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I do not believe there ever existed a Christian yet who did not now and then doubt his interest in Jesus. I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. I think a more realistic assessment of the human experience, especially the the Christian human experience, is when is what we hear from Blaise Pascal, the 17th century French physicist and theologian, to deny, to believe, and to doubt. This is, more, this is for man what running is for a horse. This is the experience in which we live. This is the Christian experience. This is the human experience. To doubt, to doubt God's love, to doubt our enthusiasm, to wonder if we have wasted years when we look upon the world and see what is going on or see how people are prospering and they seem to be doing fine. Psalm 73 is one of the greatest psalms when it comes to a reader's response. And what I mean by that is it is one of the greatest psalms where most people read it and say, that's how I feel. It is one of those best reader's response kind of psalms where you go to it and say, that is talking about my experience, but I, but I can't tell anybody that's the way I feel. I can't tell my pastor, I can't tell my, my spouse, I can't tell my friends, I can't tell people that I'm wrestling with this level of doubt. And Psalm 73 is a, a case study of a person who's struggling with doubt. His name is Asaph. Twelve of the 150 psalms 
uh, are attributed to him. We don't know much about him other than he was a very prominent figure in the, in the, in the people of God. He was the choir master along with David. We think of the choir master and the, the head worship leader of God's people. We think of David who wrote most of the Psalms, but Asaph was right there. He was in many ways a, a contemporary, a friend of David. They, they wrote these praises uh, and songs for God's people together. And he describes doubt in verse 2. My, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. That's what doubt can be like. It's this kind of spiritual dizziness. It's this kind of spiritual vertigo, a dizziness of faith where you, you lose your footing, where you felt that you were kind of on steady and solid ground and then it fell out from under you and you felt a collapse of faith. You lose your footing, you lose your balance, where, where the ground was comfortable and felt secure and the, ones you, the one you once stood on now feels very troublesome and insecure and you questioned everything. And I'm not so sure I feel steady anymore. I don't know where to put my feet. What this psalm gives us is a very personal and clear voice to the emotions of envy and hatred of the wicked, uh, distrust in God's promises, and even apathy towards holiness. I don't even want to try anymore. What's the point? So let's take a look at Psalm 73. We want to look at doubt in this psalm under these three headings. We want to See what we find when we look out, when we look in, and when we look up. Two directions that Asaph looks lead to despair, and one direction he looks leads to the remedy for his doubt. First, why don't we look at what happens when we look out? We look out and we, we see that our observations of the world around us and our circumstances around us don't seem to match God's promises. Our expectations don't match our reality. Uh, God is supposed to be good, right? God is supposed to be kind. God is supposed to be loving. Then why does discomfort come to those who are committed to God, who have vowed their life to God? And on the other side of this, why does blessing come to the arrogant, to the proud, to the oppressive, to the self-centered? And so Asaph, who has given his life to God and as he says, he's kept his hands clean. You can understand the metaphor there. He looks out to the world and he doubts God's goodness. Because his experience through what he sees doesn't match up with what he has longed for and trusted in all along. He knows God's character and he knows God's promise and he knows God's reward for the faithful. And yet he sees an upside down reality. What do you see when you look out? When you, see, when you look out on the world around you, do you see a clear demonstration of God's good? It's not so much the pure in heart that we see winning, but the impure in heart that seem to win. Consider business, the, the cutthroat, the arrogant, the powerful. It's a great way to climb up the corporate ladder, to move ahead in life, to gain prosperity and riches and wealth and comfort in life. The wealthy and the powerful are the ones who oppress the poor and disadvantaged and marginalized. God is supposed to be good, right? Then why does this happen? 
Why do the wicked succeed and the, and, and the, and the, and the poor and the disadvantaged continue to become oppressed if God is good? You know, we look in relationships. I've been keeping myself pure my whole life. I've been waiting for that, that one person that God would bring to me. And yet here I am still all alone. And the people who seem to not care about their purity and morality and relationship, they seem to be doing fine. They seem to find the people in their life where they can have companionship and fellowship and friendship. What about in politics? It seems impossible to win in politics unless you're willing to commit character assassination on your opponent. You have to smear, you have to degrade, you have to even lie. Do whatever it takes to win. You've heard the phrase, uh, cheaters never win and winners never cheat. And you hear that as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old, but then something happens maybe around nine or ten years old where you realize that itself is not true. You've been telling me my whole life that cheaters never win and winners never cheat, but the people who are winning are the cheaters, and in order to win, you must cheat. Good guys finish last. That's, that's more true to my experience. But, but it's okay because you win in your heart. I don't want to win in my heart. I want to win like in real life. <laughs> but you'll have dignity and integrity. I don't want dignity. I want money. I, I want, uh, you can't pay your bills with dignity. You can't have a life of comfort with just dignity and integrity. To whichever, you know, even my son would say as he sees this, right, cheaters winning and the upright losing, he says, that's not fair. To which every parent would reply, life's, okay, okay, listen. God is good. God is kind. God is just. And you're saying that life is not fair? Are you sure that God's good? Would a good God do that? I mean, this is like our mantra. Well, life's not fair. Bad things happen, and that's the way it is. And you're telling me that God is good? You see doubt in Asaph. If this is the life that's given to us, it's filled with injustice, inconsistencies, and upside-down ethics, where is God? What, what's the point of making sure our hands are clean at all if life's not fair and the people who win are the wicked? That's what Asaph asks. Look deeper. Let's look deeper into the doubt in his heart, the language of his doubt. In verse 13, we saw this already. All in vain I've kept my heart clean. In verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So it's not just in Asaph uh, an intellectual doubt. He's not just saying there's inconsistencies intellectually. Here's what he's saying. I've been trying to be pure. I've been trying to be good. It's all been pointless because every day I wake up and it doesn't get better. In fact, not only does it not get better, but each day I'm greeted with a new set of problems. And platitudes and cliches don't help for the doubting heart, do they? Well, the, the sun will come up tomorrow. Still cloudy. Things are still bad happening to me. Well, this too shall pass. Well, it's not passing quick enough. Everything happens for a reason. Well, what if that reason is I'm miserable? 
When life gives you lemons, this is my favorite, right? Make lemonade. So, so now life is giving me a chore. I have to like now go and get sugar and I've got to, so much for looking out, so much for looking out to find relief for our doubt. Because if we seek to find relief for our doubt by looking out, it only creates more misery. And that's actually the cause of our misery. We see that our observations don't match our expectations. The world offers no encouragement when we look out. It only grows deeper in despair. That's the end of my sermon. Let's pray. No. <laughs> That'd be cruel, wouldn't it? I want you to see where Asaph is. I want you to see where he's struggling. I want you to see that these are real and, and likely you have these same thoughts and it, you need to be honest with this tension and this struggle. And you're given permission to, to wonder, is God good? If this is what's happening. Well, we're not done, obviously. What happens when he looks in? So he's looked out, and now he looks in. And when we look in, we're made only more Miserable. The misery actually goes deeper when we look in. When Asaph takes an honest look at himself, an assessment into his own life, he, he's only led further into doubt. See what he says in verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Wow, what a, what a description. So Asaph traces his life and he thinks upon his life. He thinks about his circumstances and his mistakes he's made. He thinks about his sins that he has committed in his life. And he sees that he's a fraud. I'm the worship leader of God's people. I'm no, I'm no good. I'm leading people and telling people that God is good and righteous and trustworthy and his promises are, he's faithful to all of his promises here I am looking out and I'm hating others and envying others and wanting what they have and wishing that they would die. And, but when I take an honest look at myself, I see that I'm no different. I'm in fact worse than them. Not only did I act in hatred towards others, get this, but he's saying, God, I hated you. Not only did I, did I, did I, hate others as I looked upon them and saw that they were wicked. God, I, I, I thought you were wicked. I, I called you wicked. I'm an animal to you. And when blessings come our way, we, we praise God for being good. But when pain comes our way, we doubt his goodness altogether. Isn't that true? When we see that God blesses us with material or physical good and circumstances, we say, God, you are faithful to your promises to care for your people. And then when things are bad, we say, where are you, God? I thought you were good. There comes a point in Asaph's self-analysis where he admits that within himself is a weak faith that wounds God and shakes his fist at God when expectations for his life do not match up with his dreams for his life. So he acknowledges that he, he curses God, he shakes his fist at God, he, he doubts God's goodness and his faithfulness when, when he's pricked in the heart, when, when his uh, soul is embittered, when something happens that brings him sorrow and pain. So much for looking in, right? Um, looking out and looking in has made Asaph miserable. That's the word in, in verse 16. Look at that. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task or a miserable task, that word can mean. 
a, a miserable task. Why is it miserable for him the more he thinks about it? I, th- I think you know. I think you know how that happens, right? I think you know why. What makes him tired? It's the kind of thinking that sounds like this. If I work diligently, so he's thinking, he's trying to assess his life and circumstances. He says, so let me get this. If I work diligently unto the Lord, and I keep my hands clean, and I work towards righteousness and holiness and piety, life is miserable. But if I deny you, and run from you, and curse you, then life is miserable. And the more I think about it, the more wearisome I get. You hear him? You ever feel like that? He says, I'm going to, tell, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to tell all the children. It's a waste of time. He says this, and he says, but then what would I do? Like, would I really do that? Would I? That makes me miserable to think that I would do that, that I would kind of pull the rug out from, from people's feet and see the church collapse and wreck their faith. Well, I don't want to live with myself doing that. So I can't live with myself by following you, and I can't live with myself by denying you, and here I am just exhausted. And I'm tired. I'm weary, and I'm miserable. Ever wondered that yourself? I have. Here's the worship leader of God's people. He's actually to the point of going to church and telling young people, treat people however you want. Do what you want. It's a waste of time. Look out for yourself. He's spinning. He's hopeless. He's depressed. But then he finds the remedy to his misery, to his doubts, not by looking out, not by looking in, but by looking up. Then he looks up. Look at what happens. There's no remedy to doubt until we go into the sanctuary of God. What happens when we look up? We look up and we believe what we find there. And that is where our remedy is. What does he see? Uh, What comforts come to Asaph when he looks up and he goes into the sanctuary of God? I want to just warn you, it's not what you expect. Here it is in verse 17 or 16 to 19. Let me read that and follow along. But when I thought about how, how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Okay, that's strange. <laughs> he sees the judgment of, God, uh, of the wicked people. That's unexpected, right? He's like, I am miserable. And what brings me comfort? Being reminded that you will destroy all the wicked people in the world. Ah, what a day that will be. Like, okay, this is getting dark. God, I was, I was, I was able, I was, saw the, the, the prosperity of, of the enemies, and I was comforted when I realized one day they will get what's coming to them. Is Asaph getting happy that one day God will restore, the, that he will destroy wicked people? and that Asaph will finally get his revenge? Yeah. Actually, he is. In in a way, he is. But it's more nuanced than that. Because there's a problem with Asaph. When Asaph looked in, he included himself among the wicked. So comfort can't be found in God's justice for the wicked, 
and blessing for the righteous, but in something else. Because he's comforted when he sees that God will destroy the wicked. But just a moment before, he included himself in that list of wicked people. And so there's, there's some trouble here. <laughs> because if God wipes out the wicked, then he wipes out Asaph, and his comfort can't be found in that. Look in verse 26. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So my flesh and my heart. He says, I actually do things that are not pleasing to you, but worse yet, there are times I don't even want to please you. I don't even have a desire to please you. So my flesh and my heart fail. My flesh, like my actual actions are sinful. My heart, some days I don't even want to follow you. What's the remedy for his crisis of faith? It was when he, what he saw in the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary was the holy place of God. It was the holy schoolhouse of God. It was the place of instruction of God, where God instructed his people, where his people heard from God and then walked in his ways. It was a place of learning about who God is and how he related to his people through the demonstration and practice of rituals, of, of visible things that people engaged in. And when Asaph looked into the temple of God, into the sanctuary of God, into the courts of his temple, he would see an altar. And in the center of worship, he would see at the place of worship an altar. And the remedy would be found in the sacrifice of God in the sanctuary for the wickedness of God's people. And at this altar, there would, it would be a sensory experience. And I want to describe those senses for you. You know, picture it with me. I don't want you to picture, as you picture the sanctuary of God and the altar of God, I don't want you to picture this pristine, beautiful altar built out of marble and gold that's just glistening with glory. The, I want you to picture a place of sacrifice, and on the altar would be a charred and bloody remains of a sacrifice of God that the priest would bring for the people, for the sins of God's people. Flies would be swarming around. It would be dripping in, in blood. There'd be parts that are charred. There'd be parts that were boiling. It would be putrid smell. It would be disgusting. There'd be the decaying remains of the sacrifice that was brought. And the altar of God's sanctuary testified to the fact that God is a God of justice that punishes sin, and yet the altar also testified that God was a God of mercy, that the only way to avoid the justice that would be poured out for the consequence of sin would be found in the substitute of the sacrifice brought. The altar testified that the blood sacrifice of a spotless substitute was necessary for sin to be forgiven. It is no question where we find Jesus in this psalm. I think you know where I'm going now. You, if I asked you, where do you see Jesus in this psalm? This is where we would find him. In the opening scenes of Jesus' public ministry, he walks into town into the crowds of people that are gathered, and John the Baptist points at him, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
We've been slaughtering lambs upon the altar. We've been slaughtering goats. We've been offering up burnt sacrifices to the altar of God. But all of those things are incapable of forgiving our sins. This is our substitute who has come. And he's the only sufficient substitute and sacrifice to take away our sins. And Asaph realized that the wicked, as they looked into the temple of God, they had no sacrifice. They had no substitute for them. And the thing that awaited the wickedness of of their lives was God's judgment and punishment. But Asaph comes to realize the good of God to him when he walks upon the altar and he sees the altar, he sees a substitute that has been brought for him. He does have a sacrifice. He does have a substitute. He does have something that will then be offered in his place and die in his place and take the punishment of God in his place. He doesn't know it. We know it. He's looking forward to Christ. He's looking forward to the sacrifice of God at the altar to take away his sins, and he trusts in that. We look back to Christ. We see that Christ was that perfect and, 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 uh, perfect and spotless substitute that was that was sacrificed and crucified and bled until he died. And he says, God, you've always been with me. Asaph says, you've always been with me. In verse 23, he says, I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Even in my doubting, he realizes that God had never abandoned him. Even in his doubting, when he looked up, And he looked up at the altar of God. He saw a God who was pouring out his life and provision for him in his own wickedness. He sees that God is a loving parent that takes a a, a small child by the right hand and guides him through life, through danger into safety. And not only in times of trauma and danger, but even beyond this life, that he will continue to hold him. Even through this struggle of my life and my doubting, you're holding me and you will bring me to safety. And I will live in peace and fullness of joy forever. This is the essence of the Christian life. This is the essence of Christianity. This is the essence of the hope of the gospel. That our relationship with God, our peace in this life, our growth in faith, and our security in the future will never be found in looking out at others or looking in at what we can accomplish for God. But it will always be looking up in faith to the sacrifice of Jesus. Doubt is so powerful. Doubt is so powerful. I want you to have the freedom to recognize that, that the doubt that creeps into your heart that causes you to doubt the love of God is powerful to shape every relationship in your life. When you look at others, doubt causes you to see their faults so clearly, to grow in resentment, to grow in envy, to grow in hate so much that you want them to die. Doubt is so powerful that it causes us that when we look at ourselves to feel shame, to hate ourselves, to despise ourselves and who we have become. Hate is so powerful that it changes our perspective on what we think of God. When we look up at God, we despise and resent Him for not acting in ways that we think proper and appropriate for a God who is good. And all of these are present in Asaph's life. Do you see that? The wisdom in God's word 
is, is inviting us to realize that not a single one of us is immune to feeling these same things. I want you to know what that is. When you have come to a place in your life, and maybe you're there now, where everywhere you look, you just, you hate it all. You know what? I hate people, I hate myself, and I think I hate God. Not only is this, not only are we not immune to feeling this way, but it's actually very normal to feel that way. And the psalm ends with a solemn reorientation towards everyone in his life. He looks at others, and where he once felt hatred and envy, he now feels compassion. And he says, God, I'm going to tell people about your goodness. Wow. Isn't that amazing? He went from, God, will you just take them out so I can have my vengeance? Now he's saying, I want to spend my life telling of your good works. I want to spend my life going to these wicked people and tell of your good works and of good, your goodness to, to, the, to them. He looks at himself and instead of feeling like a hopeless sinner, he sees a sinner who is loved by God till the end. Where he's now able to say, not, I'm, not, I'm not a horrible person who you despise, I'm a person who you love and have adopted into your family and have forgiven and you, have, you hold me by your right hand like a little child because you love me. And now he looks at God and instead of saying, I don't know if I want to follow you anymore, he, he actually reserves his choicest, most choicest words of praise for God in this reorientation of how he thinks. Look at verse 25. And will you slow down as we close and as we read these words? Here's the choice words that he chooses for God. Who am I in heaven? Who have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. What a statement that so well describes how fully God is the remedy for all that troubles us. Even our struggle with doubt and his goodness. Jesus must be the gift that we desire above all things, even life itself. Even in the midst of of life's most intense struggles and doubts, it's possible to confess that God is enough. And we will never be able to confess that when we look out and compare our lives to others. We will never be able to confess that when we look in and see maybe a potential for goodness in ourselves. It only happens when we look up and believe what we see there, that God has given himself for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that is everything. Christian faith and empirical reason and logic are not opposites. Faith is informed by logic and reason. Faith follows the evidence of God. Faith is not, I know you're hurting, but just let go and let God. Okay, that's another platitude. It's not in the Bible. Faith follows the evidence. He says, I looked up and I see the punishment for sin and I see a sacrifice for me. And when I look in myself, I see that of all the people on the earth who should be punished, it's me. But you gave your life instead. 
Faith follows the evidence of what we see when we look up at God. When our emotions scream that God is not there, it is then we need to look at the cross and look up and see Christ hanging and dying for us. And we must look at the empty grave and to the throne of Christ where he is alive today, where we see his love, his victory, his truth, his joy, his promise, and his mercy. Do you see it? Do you believe it? That's the remedy for our doubts. Let's pray.